Hi, I'm Nate Regeer, CEO and co-founding owner of Next Element Consulting. We're a leadership training firm dedicated to helping you build your culture of compassion. Welcome to my podcast, where I interview thought leaders to find great ideas and solutions we can all apply, regardless of our position or our role. Do you ever feel like your brain isn't functioning at its best? I know I sure do. Stress and our overloaded brains are two of the underlying causes creating conflict, tension, and drama in the workplace. We're constantly juggling data, reports, email, meetings, decisions, and way too much information, leading us to operate in what today's guest calls a mindful mode. No, that's not the kind of mindfulness we typically associate with meditation and serenity. It's our minds being overloaded. Our guest today has some pretty stark realities to share about the toll that this fast-paced life takes on our brains and our bodies, and a hopeful message for how we can turn things around and go from being first reactors to first responders. Stephen Howard is an award-winning author of 20 leadership, marketing, and management books and the editor of nine professional and personal development books in the Project U series. He specializes in creating and delivering leadership development programs for frontline leaders, mid-level leaders, supervisors, and high-potential leaders. In the past 25 years, he has trained over 10,000 leaders in Asia, Australia, Africa, Europe, and North America. Stephen is well-known and recognized for his truly international and multicultural perspective. Having lived in the U.S. for nearly 30 years, in Singapore for 21 years, and in Australia for 12 years, he currently resides in Southern California. It's been a real joy getting to know Stephen over the last year or two and learning about his amazing credentials and amazing experience. And I'm excited to hear today and to share with our listeners Stephen's new book, Better Decisions, Better Thinking, Better Outcomes, How to Go from Mindful to Mindful Leadership Skills. Stephen, welcome to my podcast. Thank you, Nate. It's great to be here, particularly this time of year when stress is higher than ever. Boy, aren't you right. This is the holiday season and we're right in the thick of it. Yep, absolutely. Wow. Well, I hope you're having a good holiday and then hopefully some of the things you have to share will help the rest of us get through that stress with uh, with fewer casualties. So let's dive right in. What prompted you to write this book? Well, unfortunately, my father had early stage Alzheimer's disease, so I moved back from Elstray to kind of look after him and started doing a lot of research on it. And um, then after he passed, I, uh, for selfish reasons, I continued my research. I don't want to be uh, in my final years. I don't want to have the same kind of cognitive decline that he was facing. So uh, I was really thrilled to learn some of the new scientific studies. Uh, and then I decided to apply that to the field of leadership. Wow. So it's personal for you. It has been. It really has been. And I, I mean, it, um, but it's also I'm ecstatic. I'm really happy because so much scientific research in the last 10, 15 years has shown us that there's a direct link between mindfulness and meditation and the actual thickening of our brain regions. And that just helps our cognitive capabilities. Uh, and it reduces the areas of the brain that triggers hormones and that trigger emotional outbursts. Well, I am so excited to hear about some of that research. And, you know, I, I bet some of our listeners out there have had personal um, experience with dementia, maybe a family, loved one, as well as just the impact of stress on their own brains. You mentioned that dementia is becoming a major societal issue. Will you say more about that? 
Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know about you. I'm a baby boomer and us baby boomers are aging uh, and we are also rapidly increasing in obesity as a generation. And um, partly because we're retired, we're not as active as we used to be. So um, the um, current estimates are that some 76 million people in the world, including 10 million right here in the United States, will be struggling with dementia just over a decade from now. Man, that is staggering. It, um, yeah, it, wow. it, it is. And it's, believe it or not, that's going to be a 60% increase from today's level. So 60% increase in a decade. And there is no excuse for that if we, if we start thinking about our brain and the health of our brains now. Well, in the title of your book, you have the word leadership. Is this book only for leaders? No, I, I obviously I operate in, in doing a lot of leadership development in the leadership space. So I wrote it with leaders in mind, but there's tips and techniques for everyone. Anyone who needs to make decisions in their personal lives, their professional lives, who and also who want to learn some. I put in the book a lot of fundamental practices for for both building and maintaining brain health. Well, I can attest to that. I was I was stunned by the sheer the volume of great ideas and tips in the book. You write, that, uh, you write that stress and our overloaded brains are two of the underlying causes that create this negative conflict and tension and drama in the workplace. As you know, I'm a big fan of uh, trying to get rid of drama in the workplace. So could you elaborate on this? Well, yeah, and I think you started off with your introduction about a lot of that, just the overloaded brain, the emails, the stress. I mean, but quite honestly, even outside the workplace, right now we live in a very highly divisive, argumentative, agitated, what I call a spring-loaded world. Uh, Workplace stress is at an all-time high, as is, you probably won't be surprised to know, workplace violence and fear. Mm. I mean, um, so yeah, it's, it's very critical. So what can we do about this? Well, uh, before we go that, I've got one more little tidbit for you, for your, your listeners out there. Um, the American Psychological Association is called Generation X. That's the bulk of today's workforce, the bulk of today's frontline leaders and senior leaders. They have called them the most stressed generation in the United States. So, yes, we need to start thinking about what we can do about it. Wow. Well, that's, that is a startling statistic. What can we do? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one is to understand how our body, how our brain reacts under stress. Um, and the fact that the, the amygdala takes over, the part of the brain called the amygdala takes over, it, it secretes cortisol into our blood, into our brain. And as a result, the thinking part of our brain doesn't work or isn't working. Have you ever had a situation where you said to yourself, I was so angry, I couldn't think straight? Yeah, and I was so tired this weekend, I couldn't think straight. <laughs> yeah, all that, all that adds up. Um, you know, the prefrontal cortex, I don't want to get too technical here, but and I'm not a brain scientist, but the prefrontal cortex is the rational part of our brain. It's where the thinking takes place. Under stress, under tiredness, under sleep deprivation, the amygdala is driving our brain rather than the prefrontal cortex. So effectively, uh, we're acting on our emotions, not rationally. Okay, so what what problems does that cause? Well, the problem is is that uh, we don't think straight. And the analogy I like to make, Nate, is um, we all know that you know we sometimes we think teenagers are brain dead. It's not the teenagers are brain dead, but the prefrontal cortex is the last part of their brain that develops. So what happens when we're in that mode? We are effectively thinking like teenagers. 
And I don't know of any company in the world that wants their executives to be running the business with a teenage brain. Boy, I got I got two teenagers in my life right now. <laughs> and uh, yeah, sometimes we scratch our heads wondering what were they thinking or how did they even make that decision? Right. So so to go back to your earlier, I mean, the big question is, you know, what can we do about this? I mean, there's really about five basic things. They're common sense things, but we have to stop and 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 do them. And that's we have to reduce stress in our lives, uh, partially through mindfulness techniques. I'm not suggesting you have to meditate, but there are some in the book. I show some ways of bringing mindfulness into the workplace. We need to eat healthier, uh, lose weight, um, add just some simple walking to our daily routine would, would help. Um, stay active, particularly in retirement years, and uh, just take those proactive steps to go from what I call mindful, being two words. So go from mindful to mindful as a single word throughout the day, and that will help us build better brains. Well, I am really curious about those tips. You, you listed those off pretty quickly. Would you be willing to take those again and maybe give us one or two sentences of uh, some specific strategies on each of those tips? Sure. Um, reducing stress, uh, using a, a simple mindfulness technique, quite honestly, is to just walk outside and get some fresh air. Uh, mm -hmm. And if it's too cold outside, uh, quite honestly, simply looking out the window at, at the trees um, and at nature um, and just pausing. Um, you know, it's funny, Nate, um, our mothers were right uh, in that. Remember, they used to teach us to count to 10 before we get angry. Yeah. Yep. Well, it takes the prefrontal cortex about eight seconds to 10 seconds to take back control from the amygdala. So when we're getting upset and what um, we call emotionally hijacked, um, pause, breathe, take a deep, a couple deep breaths, count to 10, count to eight, go look at nature. Anything like that will slow you down. Otherwise, as I point out in the book and you used the phrase earlier, we become responders. Uh, sorry, we become reactors to stress and we need to become responders to stress um, mm -hmm. the you know eating healthier the second point i mean that just you know any, basically anything that's good for your heart is good for your brain so in any of the health hearty diets or, or eating habits of mediterranean style of eating uh you know just reducing sweets and sugar and junk food and and colas and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. is is going to be healthier for your brain and again scientists 20 30 years ago didn't realize this they knew that all these the negative foods that we we take partake of was bad for our, our weight bad for our blood pressure blood bad for our blood sugar mm. bad for our coronary uh, but only recently have they now been able to link it to the brain as well um, and that's why walking the third point walk five, 10, just 15 minutes a day, walk where you can. Uh, I, I purposely park my car furthest I can before I walk into a supermarket or a store, uh, just to add extra steps to my daily routine. Um, when I'm in a client's office, I try and walk flights of stairs between meetings rather than mm -hmm. waiting to take the elevator to go one or two floors. Um, and then the, that leads to similar, when, you're, when you do retire, you have to stay active, particularly socially active. And I know this is what well, this is what happened. To my father, he wasn't socially active. He stayed active mentally. Um, he did his Sudoku puzzles. He, he watched a lot of documentaries on TV. He, my father was an author as well. He, he still he, he was writing into the last three or four years of his life, mm. um, but he didn't stay socially active. And that's an area of great concern. Um, uh, so those are really the, the key proactive steps. I mean, just some really basic things to that anybody can do. 
Well, thank you for that. And, and for those people that might be interested in getting uh, Stephen's book, I can, uh, I can verify there are gr there's great detail, great information in there for practical tips to go beyond just what you've heard here. So I, I'm a psychologist by background. I studied a lot of brain science and I think a lot of people think they kind of understand the brain because it's hot now and everybody's talking about it and they read their snippets on the news. But you have a whole section in your book identifying myths about the brain. And I was startled because I thought I wouldn't fall for any of them. And I was surprised <laughs> many of those myths, you know, I actually believe. And so would you say a little bit about some of those myths and maybe some of the ones you were most surprised about in your research? Yeah, I came over a whole bunch of them. I know I grew up, I was taught um, that, you know, our brain stops growing approximately when we're 25 years of age or, you know, somewhere in our early 20s or something. And now uh, neuroscience technology is showing that the brain can continue to create new brain cells. It's what we call neuroplasticity, it can continue to create new brain cells well into our 70s. And some scientists actually believe it might be older. They just haven't had an opportunity to, to take the studies a, a lot further. But as we age, and, and that's the other thing about what, what's happening in the world, you know, the populations are aging. So if, uh, if dementia hits at 60, somebody might live with dementia for 30, 35 years, um, mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. So that's one. The other thing that really surprised me, because I long believed that, in fact, I used to even teach this in, in, in programs years and years ago, that we are either, we are either left brain or we're right brain. Yes, and, that one blew me away. Yeah, and no, we are we we have two we have two halves of our brain, and, and they interconnect. And what's interesting is that, uh, and there used to be things like, and I don't remember the specifics here, but I, if I recall correctly, it was like the sight was on the left side of the brain, and but now we've been able to find it. Well, two things with the sciences have learned: one, that there are aspects of science or uh, sight or even language. It used to be that they thought that uh, our language skills were all a uh, right brain skill, but it it turns out hearing words and processing words is a right brain skill, but analyzing words and understanding the context behind them is a left brain skill. So we use both sides of our brain in conjunction. Um, and that was kind of satisfying to know. But, um, that, mm -hmm. uh, we get, and, and which also leads is, is um, you know, I'm sure everyone's heard that story that we only use 10% of our brains. And, and that's not true at all. We, we use every part of our brains, not simultaneously. Uh, that would probably cause our brains to uh, overwork and, and heat up too much and, and cause problems. But we use at any point during a 24 to 48 hour, we pretty much use every part of the brain. And um, except for teenagers, right? Except they for well, well, because it hasn't been it hasn't been developed yet. I mean, that's not their <laughs> fault. I mean, that's one thing I guess parents need to understand is uh, it's not their fault. The teenage for the front prefrontal cortex hasn't developed yet. So yeah, and yet we're yet we're giving them all these new responsibilities. We're asking them to make choices. Their relationships are yeah. more complex than before, and they're in honesty just not equipped to do it. Um, well. Those are a couple pretty powerful myths, and there's more. How how many was there that you listed? Oh, in your I book? think I think there was forty or forty five. In honesty, I know what because there, there was one research study that 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 surveyed about thirty three yeah. of them or something. The well, the, I, hmm? I think that could make a really good uh, uh, game for people to play. Identify the myths. It's a great idea. I, you know, the two truths and a lie. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great idea. Um, uh, the other one that really shocked me too was sleep deprivation. I didn't think that you know you hear a lot about you know not getting enough sleep being bad for you, but 
the uh, long-term sleep deprivation, um, continuous sleep, sleep deprivation actually has some major impacts. Um, as a matter of fact, if, if you like, I've, I've got a, uh, a study here I can quote for you is that um, uh, this comes from UCLA and that if you go 19 hours without sleep, basically your, your brain is effectively has a blood, a blood alcohol t- content of 0.5. And if you go 24 hours with no sleep, you're effectively have a brain alcohol tent, or sorry, blood alcohol tent, I should call it, sorry, blood alcohol content of 0.10, which is higher than the 0.08 maximum level to drive. Um, Crazy. And it's not surprising to learn, therefore, that tiredness is the number one cause of uh, automobile automobile accidents. Wow. And and we're, so we got tiredness and, and, you know, there's all this talk of, of social media and being on devices. And, and I'm sure that links into the stress and the multitasking myth. And uh, you actually mentioned the multitasking is a myth uh, in oh, your book. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a myth that we can do it, that we can do it effective. We can do it on, on small stuff. I mean, any of us can watch a TV show or a movie and, and follow the plot and, and still eat a dinner or something like that. Sure. Um, but when you really need to think deeply about a subject or listen deeply to other people, uh, if you're multitasking, you just can't, you won't be able to do it efficiently. And, um, but on top of that, it is, is it prematuring the aging of our brains. And that's my real worry from a societal standpoint, because particularly you look at the millennial generation and, and, and the generation after that, that everything they do is multitasking long-term uh, it is damaging the brain's ability to focus and to concentrate. And therefore, I worry about those folks, you know, 30, 40 years from now when they're approaching retirement and they've been multitasking for 30, 40, 50 years. But, uh, it's a worry. So what are some overall steps we should be taking to be building and maintaining the health of our brains? Well, I think the first thing is just become aware of it. Um, the, the, one of the most fascinating things I learned in the research is that the early in the early stage, not early stages, that's the wrong word, but the um, our our brains, the damages to our brain that re- re- result in dementia and Alzheimer's actually start in our 30s and our 40s. So the number one thing to do is to um, understand now and start to start thinking about brain health now this is not a subject for retirement years this is a subject for now quite honestly and i think leaders of organizations particularly leaders who are, who are leading conscious organizations should be aware of the stress that they're putting their employees under uh, and how that's going to have long-term impl- implications for not only the employees but their the health of their employees post their retirement years so it's um, wow. something that everyone so should be work, aware of. It's a workplace wellness and long-term health issue. Mm-hmm. Wow. It is, and that's why. And that's why I, you know the title says mindful leadership. But in honesty, as you asked earlier, it's, it's these are tips anybody can use uh, to start start working on building and maintaining the health of their brain. Uh, this, and the second thing, obviously, is, is weight reduction. Obesity again, anything right. that's good for the heart is going to be good for the brain because the brain uses, if I recall correctly, something like 70% of the oxygen that we breathe, and it's the, it's the organ that uses up the most amount of our blood. So circulate, if, you, if you slow down circulation of the blood to the brain, then you're going to have long-term, long-term impact. Yeah. Your, your book has a lot of great practical tips and resources. 
what, share with our readers just a few of the things that they'll get out of your book that they can apply right away. Well, here's the number one thing, I think, um, and, and it applies both in workplace stress and, and um, even your personal life. I, I would suggest that everyone stop and ask themselves this one simple question, and I'll, I'll phrase it. I'll, I'll do it fairly slowly for anyone who wants to take notes of it. Um, the question is simply, in what situations and in what interpersonal interactions do you regularly find your emotions and your reactions working against you and your best interests? Say that again. Say that okay. again. So in what situations uh-huh. and in what interpersonal interactions do you regularly find your emotions and your reactions working against you and against your best interests? So, for instance, I see I travel all the time. I, you know, like all of us, a flight delay. It's fascinating to watch people at the airport. Some people just <laughs> and it's a one hour delay. Other people get nervous and anxious that they're going to miss their connection flight. The airlines will take care of that to the best of the ability. There's nothing any of us can do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Others are worried about all missing an important meeting, blah, blah, blah. And yes, I agree. It's, it is important. But stressing over it, reacting, taking your anger, taking your emotions, taking your anxiety out on the poor people people at the check-in counter is not going to help you get to your meeting one second faster. And so uh, it's understanding when we all, we all have triggers. We all lose it at times. Uh, none of us is perfect. Um, but to understand this is it's the self-knowledge first and then, then start to identify a mindfulness technique that works for you. Mine is a technique that we call box breathing. It's breathing in for eight seconds, holding my breath for eight seconds, exhaling for eight and, and then um, holding it without breath for eight seconds and repeating this for two to three minutes. And I can do this standing in the line uh, at the airport. Uh, I can um, sort of thing. And it will just, it will slow down your, your heart rate. It'll slow down your pulse. It'll prevent your palms from sweating. It will get you under emotional control. Otherwise, uh, that could be a situation that you could lose it in. Well, I, when I read that section of the book, I, I wrote in the margin, Lamaze breathing because mm. it reminded me of going through Lamaze classes with my wife and the, the techniques of breathing to help manage pain and stress and uh, stay calm under, mm. under pressure. Um, I really also enjoyed the book because I, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of how we, how we respond more productively to conflict and drama. And so many of the situations you described is how, is how drama can short circuit and harm our brains and how you provide so many great tips and ways for us to get that energy back under control and use it positively and build our resilience to dealing with life's ups and downs in much more productive ways. It is. And it leads right into, you know, the, the, what you advocate and, and, and I, the book of yours I read about the drama triangle and, you know, when we're tired or stressed, we're going to fall directly into either the rescuer mode or the persecutor mode or the victim mode. And if we can get ourselves under control, we can do what you teach in, in, in your program, the leading out of drama program, that what you call that compassion cycle. And we can be open to others. We will listen to others. I mean, I guarantee our ears close when we get angry and, and upset. We can be resourceful. We can think of ideas and options. And then we can be persistent because we'll understand what's important to us and you know, kind of where our non-negotiables are. How how can we work ourselves out of this situation? So I think there's a lot of linkage between the scientific part of this, the mindfulness part of my book, and the compassion cycle of uh, your programs and books. 
Well, I, I have to tell you, the title intrigued me. And I remember the first time I saw the title of your book, I, I said, what do you mean? It's out of order. Most people <laughs> would think that better thinking leads to better decisions and then better outcomes. But you focus on how better decisions actually leads to better thinking and then better outcomes. Will you help us understand this little twist? Well, yeah, and it, it's, it's kind of what, what I'm talking about. The first decision you need to make, any of us needs to make, is not to get emotionally hijacked, to stay present in the moment, to be mindful, to, to get rid of distractions. So whatever decision that we need to make, uh, whatever options we need to take in consideration before we get to that part which is kind of the thinking and analytical part of it we need to make them a, a decision to stop pause uh get ourselves under control um listen with actively and with full purpose to the person speak to us then we're in a position to actually start the thinking the, the thinking process and from the thinking process that will help us reach conclusions that will give us a better outcome so that's that's why i did it in that order Wow, that's, you really reframed the thinking as some pretty basic essential choices and realizing that well, these are choices we're making and we can make different ones. They are, they are. And you know, you go back to that box breathing I mentioned earlier, just briefly, um, that is a technique that the Navy SEALs use. And so as I write in the book, my attitude is very simple. If I don't know any, no executive I've ever worked with has a more stressful life than a Navy SEAL. So if these techniques will work for them uh, in what they go through, I think it can work for all of us. Well, this is fantastic. I am, I am, it's crazy how fast the time is, has gone. I just so enjoy hearing you talk about this and hearing your passion. Your knowledge is clearly so deep and we've barely scratched the surface of the incredible information in your book. If you were going to share in maybe one or two sentences, what, what, unique value does your book bring over and above any other book that's trying to just talk about brain science or stress management or mediation or meditation? Um, you know, there's a lot of books out there on these different topics. What does your book uniquely bring to the readers? I think two things, Nate, and that's one of the reasons I think I did do the leadership um, focus on it. But when I started talking to leaders about this, I could not get their attention. It was, yeah, 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 brain health sounds good. Yeah, 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 I understand I need to lose weight. Yeah, 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 blah, blah. But then when I started showing that what is happening impacts their decision-making and impacts the decision-making of all of their leaders in their organization, I got their attention because this does impact the decisions that each of us make. So um, in terms of you know whether to take a certain strategy, to invest somewhere, uh, to meet with a customer, to, to solve a customer service issue, whatever it happens to be, these, these decisions are, are, um, are all impacted by our stress. Uh, the other thing I guess that's unique about this book is, is um, I've read a lot of books on mindfulness and meditation and stuff. And there's a lot of books on neuro on neuroscience as well. I think this is the one first one that kind of bridges the two that kind of shows there's one, maybe one other, but but this one really that one's more technical than this book. I, I wrote this the book so that anybody can read it, but I'm trying to bridge the knowledge gap here. Um, because I'll be honest with you, I'm now um, my my goal, my life's purpose, so to speak, right now is to help educate people on the importance of brain health. Uh, I don't want people to go through what I did with my father. I mean, the emotional cost, the financial cost of dealing with an aged parent uh, with dementia, uh, early stage Alzheimer, it is just devastating. And, and the fewer people have to go through that, the better off uh, everyone will be. Thank you. 
The book is called Better Decisions, Better Thinking, Better Outcomes, How to Go from Mindful to Mindful Leadership Skills. Stephen Howard, the author, I want to give you a chance here before we wrap up to let our listeners know, how can they get a hold of you? How can they get your book? Oh, well, the book, thank you very much. Well, the book is on Amazon. It's in both uh, paperback and uh, Kindle. Uh, it's, it's less than $20 on Amazon. So it's, it's, it's well worth a, a small investment to pick up a copy and read it. Uh, you can follow me on LinkedIn. There's a Stephen Howard in the greater Los Angeles area. Uh, or if you really want to contact me personally, you can contact me uh, at my email address, which is Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, at calianteleadership.com. So Caliante, C-A-L-I-E-N-T-E, leadership, all one word, dot com. And then obviously my website is calianteleadership.com as well. Fantastic. And for those of you out there that maybe didn't get this, I will include contact info and a link to the book in the podcast uh, description and details. Steve, thank you so much for coming on my podcast and sharing your valuable message for my listeners. Well, I appreciate it, Nate. And as I said, this um, the timing was perfect because, hey, the next three or four weeks, we're all going to be under increased stress. So the more we can become aware of it, uh, the happier holidays we can all have if we can not let ourselves get hijacked. Wow, the timing couldn't be better and the message is timeless. Thank you all for joining my podcast. Here's wishing you a terrific day. <laughs>